Hi guys, welcome to So Inappropriate. It's Tuesday, July 13th. I've missed you, hope you've had a great week. And sorry about the lack of a song today. I actually ordered a theme song. I've talked about this a million times, who cares? But I ordered a theme song, I didn't like it. I thought it was gonna be ready today. They're rejiggering it for me, so we're working on it. But we'll have that maybe for next next episode. So hope you're having a great week. Summer is in full swing. Hope you had a great July 4th. Mine was fine. Anyway, what a week, what a week, what a week. There's a lot of news to talk about, so we'll get into that in a minute. And I have a really interesting interview today with Julia Cook, who is the author of a book I've recently read called Come Fly the World. Now, it's not my usual here on the So Inappropriate show, but I have been tasked with bringing you things that I love and I really, really, really love this book and she was so sweet to talk to me. So we have like a 35 minute interview with her and it's history and juicy and it was just such a great book and I wanted to tell you guys about it and plug that book and you should go read it. So we'll have that in a minute and I'm gonna put the interview timing on the show notes so if you wanna skip ahead to that or what have you. So something kind of interesting happened to me last week. So I went to, my kids are, my kids are going to this fancy day camp in our area this year for the first time. And so they had this like meet and greet thing on a Saturday before the first day of camp and you go up and you see the camp and you pick up their schedule and their backpacks and you meet the counselors and you know, it was really fun. So I did my daughter's, then I went to my son's area and I go to pick up his backpack and I'm talking to someone and I see this girl and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I saw this girl and I know her from a couple years ago and well, let me back up. So I want to say like four years ago, I had this, I had a falling out with two friends. One of them was a friend I've had for a very, very, very long time and our families know each other and we have a lot of history and I see her all the time and it was like very hurtful to me and that um, I just, when I stopped speaking to this person, it was, it was, I felt, I felt like I had been disrespected and treated in a way that a longtime friend should never treat someone. So, and I'm, I'm a very loyal person. So when you've known someone for a very long time and they don't have your back and they don't treat you in a way that you think is befitting to that sort of a deep relationship, it was just, it was just really hurtful to me. And I, I really don't think I'll forgive her. Um, and her version of the story is probably different, but so it was me and the longtime friend. And then there was like this other girl that we were also sort of friendly with and that girl we had known for not very long. And so the three of us got into a disagreement. They sided together. So my long-term friend sided with my short-term friend and they treated me very badly. And for, for I'm not sure of the reason why, because I felt like I had been pretty great to both of them. Um, I don't even know, honestly, if those two are still friends. It seemed very super, their friendship seemed very superficial to me anyway, which is another reason why I was so angry. I'm like, why are you even, you've known this girl for five minutes and she's like a shallow, like label whore monster. I don't get it. But anyway, 
Um, I don't even know if they're still friends anymore. Who knows? But, um, and like the long-term for, former friend, like I've, I see her all the time and it's just like annoying and awkward and I don't even like acknowledge her and I just can't even be in the same room as this person. But, um, and like, oh, I wish her, I don't wish her well. I wish her not well. <laughs> She's not great. But anyway, um, so I'm at this day camp meeting my son's counselors and I see this girl and this girl, I wouldn't say was like a friend of mine, but she was a, an acquaintance and she was friendly. She was really good friends with the, um, the short term friend that is no longer friends with me. Does that make sense? So she was like one of that girl's friends and I always thought she was like really nice and then I never saw her again after we had that big falling out. And she and I never had an issue, but I just figured like, I kind of saw her and I was like, oof, steer clear because, um, you know, I just don't want to like have an awkward run in with someone that I don't need to have, you know? So I just sort of like put my head down and walked away and she comes over to me and I'm like, oh no. She's like, Sarah. And she was so nice and she has a son, my son's age and they were going to be in the same group together. And like for a minute, I just sort of like, got nervous like oh no but she couldn't have been nicer and she we talked about like you know I kept it kept it light kept it you know fine and she said to me are you friends with I'll call her Beth are you friends with Beth anymore and I was like no and I'm like where is this going and she's like neither am I and I was like really and she looks at me and she goes yeah she just stopped talking to me and I said you know me I'm like forever the interviewer I was like, what happened? And she said, I really don't know. And I said, I'm really sorry because I know that this girl was in Beth's wedding. They like, they're like, they were really tight. And so, which is part of the reason why I was like hiding from this person. <laughs> but it was sort of, um, like I don't wanna say I'm happy that they're no longer friends because I'm not. Like I think that's really sad. And, but, but now it just, it's interesting. It just sort of like justifies in a way it kind of justifies what I went through because I'm like, if this person cut out her really, really good friend that was in her wedding, then of course there's, it's maybe it wasn't me, you know? Cause sometimes I have like, since that big falling out I have with these people a couple years ago, I, I'm actually, I'm actually like a fair human and I will sit back sometimes and be like, what was my role in this? And I'm not going to get into details, but I had a role in it for sure. And, but with the, and especially with the long-term friend, with the short-term friend, I'm like, eh, whatever, like we can, uh, who cares? Sometimes people don't need to be around and I, I don't need to, I don't need, she, she was like a lot of drama. Like I wasn't that upset about that. But the long-term friend, I, well, not even that, I don't know. But I've tried. Anyway, that's my point. So, but that, this girl coming up to me and being like, I'm no longer friends with Beth. And we figured out that it was like kind of around the same time. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And, now, and then I drove away. And she couldn't have been nicer. And our boys are the same age. And they're going to, I can just tell that they're going to be friendly. And I'm like, you know what? I'm so glad she came up to me because... I was feeling a little anxious and I just, I wasn't sure, like, of course it's all about me. I'm like, what did she, what did Beth say about me to this girl? Is she gonna come up and like be a bitch to me? She couldn't have been nicer. 
she basically went through the same thing I did, except in this girl's case, it was, it was apparent from what she told me, which was not much, but it was apparent that this girl basically just like tossed her aside and there was no real reason, which is like, it's just so apparent of the kind of shallow, like asshole this person is, but whatever. Um, so, so anyway, so it was just, it was just like a nice thing. I just, I walked away from it. Like it was just like very peaceful and nice to walk away and be like, I am, I am justified in maybe, maybe this, maybe this person, maybe it wasn't me. That's all I'm saying. Maybe she just decided that she hates everybody and it wasn't really me. And she wants to just literally torpedo every friendship that she has except for her shallow ones like my other former friend that she decided to hang out with which I'm not even sure they're friends anymore I would doubt I would highly doubt it because it it's just it's just a, it just was from the beginning was a very superficial friendship so but anyway it, it's nice to hear that you can like move on from these things in a way and sort of survive it and maybe we're all maybe I'm overthinking everything and maybe, maybe these things aren't as big a deal as you think they are. That's all. And I think my, I really think like I'm, the minute I met her kid, I was like, oh, my son's going to love this kid and they're going to be friends. And it just, it made me feel really good. Like in a cheesy way, it's maybe, you know, things peel anyway. Um, a little bit of pop culture. So what a week, what a week. So Three things happened in the last, I don't know, 10 days that just honestly for me could not be more A, depressing, and B, explosive. So the first thing, so okay, so these, these are three major things. So the combination of them, there was a slap on the wrist for Allison Mack. Bill Cosby, the serial rapist, was released on a legal technicality. And the never-ending conservatorship of our friend Britney Spears just put me in a tailspin because I was like thinking to myself, is the American judicial system okay with imprisonment, rape, and torture of innocent women? And it just, I'm not, you know, I'm not usually that kind of a person, but it put me in that mood. And then I started thinking, well, Ghislaine Maxwell, or how do you say it? Ghislaine? Ghislaine? Oh, it's Ghislaine, sorry, it's Ghislaine. Ghislaine Waxwell is like celebrating in herself because the three-year sentence that Allison Mack received, which I'll get into in a minute, which infuriates me, is I think sadly will be very good news for Ghislaine Maxwell. So Allison Mack, if you don't remember, is the second in command of Nexium, which is the sex imprisonment cult started by Keith Raniere and started out basically as an MLM and then it got dark and they continued to operate and torture and sexually abuse women under the guise of female empowerment. I mean, it was just so sick. I've talked about it. Um, go back into like, I think it was like my third or fourth episode. Go back and listen to it. I go into a lot of detail about Nexium there and, and how it came to be and what exactly it was. But so I've been following this story for gosh, like two years. So Allison Mack has been sentenced to three years, three years in federal prison. And again, if you've been following the way I've been following this story, three years is a joke. I mean, it's, it's a flick in the eyeball for Allison Mack who deserves to be 
frankly, rotting in a jail cell for 20 years, in my opinion. She also got $20,000 fine and 1,000 hours of community service. The guidelines for her sentencing, given her crimes, had a su suggested prison time of 14 to 17 years. Well, how did she get it down to three? She asked the judge for leniency due to her cooperation and the fact that she's been getting her online BA degree from UC Berkeley since she's been on house arrest awaiting trial since early 2020. And get this, she is majoring in psychology. Heaven help us. Max said she was brainwashed by Rainier for the 11 year period she was involved with Nexium. She provided damning audio and video content to authorities to help them nail Rainier and they called her a credible, valuable witness and source. She testified that Rainier was a, quote, twisting influence on her life. Keith Rainieri was sentenced to 120 years in prison last October. The Bronfman sisters, who were the, basically the, they bankrolled the whole operation, were sentenced to seven years. And again, Allison Mack basically got her sentence cut down to a third of the recommend, recommended time because she agreed to cooperate with the prosecutors and built a bigger case against Rainier. Actress Jessica Joan, who was a former member of Nexium, testified against Allison Mack, quote, saying, quote, she was the most evil monster I've ever met, worse than Ranieri. The evil was there before Keith Ranieri got to her. I look at her now in the stand and I see nothing but hate in her eyes, end quote. I agree. I think this woman, Allison Mack, has literally, I mean, what more, do, what more proof do they need that she shouldn't be walking around freely. I mean, the woman has literally branded her initials into women's private parts like they were cattle. And there's about 50 women walking around right now with her initials on them. How sick. She's a monster. I mean, I think three years is a joke. She will learn nothing. She didn't lose out on some big career path because she never really had one. She was like the fourth lead on Smallville 10 years ago. Whatever. She'll be out of prison in 18 months and write a book and get an Oprah interview. She will stay overnight at Meghan Markle's house for sleepovers and she will become a women's domestic violence advocate person. She will get a makeover and have very blonde hair. She will then start a podcast and interview women who have gone through similar things. She'll start like a cult podcast or something. You heard it here first. It's just, it's so sick to me. She's going to end up being richer and more famous than me. Sick. Anyway. So moving on to Britney Spears. Um, I think this is going to be my last word on Britney unless there's like something major going on. Because I just, every time I talk about Britney Spears, I get like hate. And I just think people misunderstand my take on this whole thing. But basically, I just want to say this. Whatever's going on or went on with Britney Spears, we don't know. We don't know. The 24-year-old gay guys that scream at me when I say that Britney should be under conservatorship, you don't know. I don't know, and you don't know, and you don't know what went on, and we don't know why this happened in the first place. I talked to someone recently who is a... Um, She's a clinical psychotherapist and she, I asked, I just asked her like, what's your take on the whole Britney thing? And she was like, it's, as I've said before, she said, it is virtually impossible to secure a conservatorship in a healthy young person. 
And she said, I don't know anything about this. And who really does? But she said, unless the person is like 85 and losing their faculties or they're mentally, you know, like they have Down syndrome or something, it's very hard to secure a conservatorship against a young, seemingly normally healthy person. You can't just go out and get a conservatorship because you want to steal someone's money. And someone that's 30, 30 years old, like Brittany was. So she said, it has to do a lot of the times if someone is on drugs and they're a danger to children or themselves, or if they're exhibiting like, um, like sexually deviant behavior where they can actually, and that's considered a form of self-harm. So she said it, it had to have been an environment where the, her children were not safe and her husband at, or her ex-husband wasn't going to be able to provide like the proper care for the children or, you know, monetarily wise. So basically they put her and plus I've heard that there was some sexually explicit, you know, deviant behavior. So she said, my take on it is that it could be that they couldn't force her to give the ex-husband the child support he needed to take care of the kids. Plus she was acting in a way that could harm herself sexually. And, but she did say that most conservatorships, she's, she's like, it's people that have like severe, you know, people that are drug addicts and like stealing money from their parents and stuff. And she said, but the cases that she's seen with conservatorships, they last, you know, six months and, and that's it. And they're, you know, they don't get them again. So th that's an interesting tidbit. But my, but my last little bit on Britney Spears, which I heard, it could be, well, I don't think it's a rumor, but I'm going to tell you about it. So this woman, Lou Taylor, she's the woman that is basically the mastermind behind Britney's whole conservatorship. She works with Jamie Spears. She set up the, the gaggle of lawyers and family members that were going to be assigned to Brittany and they drain her bank accounts to keep their conservatorship going. She is a business manager. So she has worked with um, many different celebrities. She's in charge of the conservatorship of Amanda Bynes. She tried to get Courtney Love in a conservatorship about eight years ago when Courtney Love was exhibiting some questionable behavior. So the new bit on this is, stay with me, it's a bit of a stretch. So I don't know if you've seen, but a lot of the celebrities that were quote unquote friends of Britney Spears, I say friends with quotes because these are like, they're not friends, they're like her showbiz contemporaries. The Christina Aguilera, the Paris Hilton, the Lindsay Lohan. Are they Britney's friends? No, but they've done the cool girl popular thing where they've said they're free Britney stuff. The only one out of that little group that has not is Kim Kardashian. And why is that? So, I, and again, I'm not judging people for not jumping on this train because I know everyone's like, they've got to say something, they've got to say But again, I'm taking the stance of, we don't really know. Just be quiet until you have all the facts. And it's just, I just don't think anyone really knows what they're talking about with this. I think, I think the situation is a lot more nuanced than this innocent person is being held against her will. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, so allegedly, Kim and Kris Kardashian had attempted to hire Lou Taylor, this is the monster mastermind behind Brit's conservatorship, to have Kanye declared insane in the media and have him held in a 5150 last summer. 
So 5150 is a California thing where you can be held against your will on a psychiatric hold in California. This is what Brittany had when she was put in the ambulance with her shaved head and she was like hiding in the bathroom holding one of her children. And they had her taken away by ambulance and held in a 5150. And that's usually the first step in securing control over someone when they are declared incompetent to take care of themselves. So they tried to do this to Kanye West last summer, unsuccessfully. So this is the time when, it was like last summer, or maybe two summers ago, when Kanye West was allegedly running for president, he called Chris, Kim Jong Chris, <laughs> He was talking about divorcing Kim. He was blathering on about her abortions in the press and tweeting. And he appeared not so great. Well, they apparently they tried. They hired Lou Taylor and they tried to get it done to him. And they were unsuccessful. And I think basically he just fled to Wyoming and was like, no. So, so Kim is allegedly very quiet right now because she doesn't want Lou to come out and point the finger back at her. And I kind of believe it. So that's just very interesting. And if I were Kim, I would stay quiet too. So on Britney's Instagram today, she posted a picture of her and her boyfriend with the caption. They're just like in shorts and t-shirts and they're like on a walk somewhere. And she said, my boyfriend looks so much like a dad. I'm like, hmm, like what's that all about? Maybe she wants, I don't know, this whole thing where she wants to have a kid. You know, I think it's fine. Everyone's like, don't do it. Honestly, if you want to have a kid, have a kid. I mean, the kid will be raised by nannies. She doesn't need to. She has so much money. She can care for it. And it will be fine. She can have a kid. Whatever. Everyone get over that. All right. So the Bill Cosby thing. So I don't really know like the intricacies of it but basically he was released from prison because he had confessed to the sexual assault of several women while promised that he would not serve any jail time well then the prosecutor turned around and used it against him in his trial so that has been declared a mistrial and a unfair jailing so he's been released from prison i think he served about four years or something so he's a free man they're not going to Prosecute. So basically the prosecutor did something dirty and got caught. And unfortunately, that means that this man is walking free. And it's pretty gross. Um, it was. It's pretty gross that that even was allowed to happen from the beginning. I think they could have definitely nailed him without cheating. And it just, it makes me sad. I think they just wanted to win quickly. And they didn't think anyone would uncover that. It's sad. So his TV wife, Felicia Rashad, Mrs. Cosby, tweeted her support for her TV husband upon the news of his release from prison. And that was not, that's not a hill I'd want to die on, but okay. Um, so now people are asking for Felicia Rashad to be fired because she's a dean in the fine arts program at Howard University, which is a predominantly black college. I believe it's in Atlanta. I could be wrong. I think it's in Atlanta. Um, so Cosby has made numerous high value donations to this school and now he's supporting calls from the public for the university to return his funds to him. I mean, returning his funds to him would basically mean empowering him by giving him $20 million back. Just keep the money. Just say we denounce it, we already spent it and keep the money. I mean, it's dumb. Of course he wants his money back. He doesn't care. It's just a weird, 
coincidence that these things, these three things all happened in the span of like 10 days. This totally innocent girl is a prisoner because she's a little messy. And these two monsters, what's her name? Allison Mack and Bill Cosby are basically walking around. I mean, I know Allison Mack's going to jail, but it's, trust me, it's a joke. She's basically, she got off scot-free in my opinion. And the two of them raped and and abused women. And Brittany might be a mess, but she has done nothing to harm anyone ever in that I can see. And, you know, I know I make fun of her a lot, but she's a 39-year-old woman. If she wants to spend all her money on glitter and stickers and date weird guys and have more babies, it's her money and she should be able to. And, I mean, look at... Look at these like NBA players that go bankrupt. I mean, no one's putting them under conservatorship. Like, why can't she spend her own money? Who cares? If she, if she wants to go bankrupt, then let her go bankrupt. She can, she'll be fine. Her kids are teenagers. They don't have to live with her if they don't want to. So I don't think Brittany, personally, I think there's some mental illness going on there, but there are plenty of people, everyone's mentally ill. There's plenty of people walking around with mental illness that are fine. I mean, literally, I could, I could, Every single one, every single person I know has mental illness. Let her be mentally ill with her money. She'll be fine. I guarantee you, if they let her free, she will not change that much. She doesn't want to tour anymore. I wouldn't either. She just wants to like be with her boyfriend and have a baby. Who cares? Whatever. I'm, I'm done talking about Brittany. All right, a little bit about the housewives. So I'm just going to do a little glossing over. There's been so much in the news. I'm going to save it for Shannon. Shannon's on vacation. So when she gets back, we'll you know, go more, but I just have some top level thoughts. So on the OC, you know, I love the OC. I know a lot of people, oh, it's so bad. No, it's not. It's the best. Kelly Bronwyn and Elizabeth are out. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Now, a lot of people don't agree with me with this and I don't care, but Kelly Dodd is amazing television. I do not care if her COVID behavior offended anyone. She carried the entire show last year and she called everyone out on their crap. She was the only person on the show doing her job last year. She just said on a podcast recently that she asked Bravo to release her Q score after she was fired. She's like, well, let me see my Q score. And the Q score is basically a measure of like likability and popularity. And it's the measure that the networks use to gauge audience response to characters and content. And Bravo refused. And Bravo allegedly really depends on their Q scores to make changes and additions to their shows. So, and she's like, it's the first time they've never showed me my Q score. So that just tells me that she was fired for being outspoken and like not woke. And 100% Heather Dubrow refused to film with her. So more on that in a minute, but I'm sad about Kelly. Bronwyn is out allegedly not because she's not interesting. She is. The producers felt, and I'm sure this came out in her Q score also, that she was too contrived. I agree. Her home situation was like too stressful for the viewers, which I completely agree with. So I felt a lot of sadness for her family, like due to her personal life over the past years. And I don't think she should be on TV either until she can like settle that down and figure it all out because it just, it, so if you don't know, Bronwyn came out as, as gay last year in the beginning of the pandemic and, and an alcoholic. So she stopped drinking. She says she's gay and I guess like going sober, like cleared her head, but that she wants to stay with her husband as a family. And so, and they have seven children ranging from like 20 to four 
and some of her children are gay and some of them are I don't really know it's hard to keep up she's got a lot of kids but then she would she would say things like my husband's not allowed to date but then she would go around dating and it was just like you just felt so bad for the family and the husband and like the kids have to be confused and it's just it I think she thought that it was going to be like modern family this is so great and I think for at least for me I just felt it was very sad like and I'm not come I, I there's nothing about it's nothing about being gay or whatever it's just it's it's that I just felt that like they're the ambiguity in the like structure of their family was very sad to watch and I just I think that children need like some sort of structure and children like to have you know I have kids kid my kids like to have answers and to have everything be like loosey-goosey and strange and they you, when you can't explain things to them it just it's very confusing and unsettling and they don't feel safe and it just the whole thing just made me feel very sad for their family so I'm glad she's gone it's 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 juicy it is it's it's an interesting story and it's I'm interested in it it's just I don't think it's fun to watch someone's family go down the tubes if that makes sense so I'm fine with that Elizabeth Vargas also was let go I almost forgot to mention Elizabeth now I don't think anyone really got invested enough with her to be like sad that she's gone but I think she deserved another season she got this like weird crappy COVID season. She has this interesting backstory. Remember she had like, she was raised in a cult and then she had this like really wild divorce and I don't know. I found her like very interesting and sweet and she got like stuck filming with Bronwyn cause like no one really cared enough to get to know her. And I don't know why they got rid of her. I think there was like more to her. And I, I thought she was like a good, I thought she was a good person. And she had like a nice house. I don't know. Heather Dubrow is back. That's the big news. Now, you know I've been saying this for a while. I love Heather Dubrow. I love her. Why? She's aspirational. She's beautiful. She's got a big family. She's got a big house. A lot of people hate her, which I get. And I actually think if I met her, she would be very like dismissive and rude to me and want like nothing to do with me. But that's okay. I'm like sloppy and poor, and I get it. And I she and Kelly hate each other and I bet Heather said it's me or her and I'm sure they needed Kelly's salary to like pay Heather and I I'm I don't know this obviously but I'm sure Heather is getting like well over a million dollars for this because she don't need the money so it, it would have to be something really good to make her come back I also think that Heather's kids are like now out of that weird zone where like I think part of the reason why she left the first time it was like five or six years ago her kids were like in middle school and they were at that awkward age and she didn't want to subject them to being on TV if she wasn't going to be paid a lot of money. And they did a little clean out that year. And I think that now her two oldest are seniors in high school. They are interested in some levels of fame. Her youngest kids are into acting and singing and I think they are starting to be ready for some kind of exposure and Heather's okay with that. And she said on her podcast, which I do listen to, not regularly, but I dip in and out, um, that they had a family meeting about it and they talked about social media and what it would take. And I just think that her family is interested in becoming famous. Now, Heather Dubrow is interesting to me because I think that she is like the perfect amount of famous. She is 
most people know who she is, but like, is she being followed around by paparazzi and every move is followed? No. Are people digging into her past to find skeletons in her closet? No. Do people know who she is? Some do, some don't. Do you think she gets talked to in restaurants? Yeah, but I'm sure it's like cute moms that come up to her and not like deranged weirdos. And, you know, I think she's famous enough that she's recognized and she can put her name on something and it would sell. And she can get celebrities coming on her podcast. And, you know, I think that that's cool. Like, I think she's famous enough to be able to make a little money, but like under the radar enough that she can still live a normal life. So I think she's done a very good job with that. I recently saw something on TikTok, which I thought was really gross. And it, I think it's been taken down, but it was a, like a DoorDash driver who filmed going into her house and like the code to her like gate and then filmed her kids like answering the door and receiving the food order. And I thought that was so disgusting and like horrific. And so I realized that just negates what I just said, but <laughs> I don't think like I'm, I, that was like one losery housewife fan DoorDash driver, but like, it's not like Brad Pitt, you know, and I'm sure Heather wrote a letter of intent to sue this person. It was taken down really soon after that, but I was really pumped to see like the little glimpse of her house. And I think the version of Heather Dubrow we're going to get in the housewives is going to be very calculated and very measured. But that's okay. We all know it's fake now. We all know that, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors. I'm okay with that. We expect these things. And we finally get to see this house. And a lot of people hate her. Like I said, I think it's jealousy. She's thin. She's super rich. She has a beautiful house. She's super fancy. She takes vacations that none of us could ever go on in a million years. She flies on private jets. She went on vacation to Coeur d'Alene in Idaho, which is my dream vacation spot, and bought a plot of land at the drop of a hat and built a ha is building a house. And so we're gonna see that being built too. And you know, she, she has everything that most people want and a lot of people hate her for that. I do not because she, I think she's a good mom and she's well-educated and she doesn't try to pretend that she's something that she's not. Like I don't, she's not trying, she's not out there being super woke and like, preachy she just like keeps her head down and does her thing and I get a sense of authenticity from her that I don't see in a lot of other super fancy rich people so I appreciate that and I just wish they had kept Kelly and Elizabeth and I don't know I would have like gotten rid of Shannon I hate to say it or like I like Gina but like I don't think she's not interesting like I could have lost Gina I love Emily Emily's a queen keep Emily I don't know I think I think Emily and Heather are going to butt heads a little bit. That's my prediction. And definitely Shannon. Shannon's all over the place. Anyway. All right. So coming up next is a really fun interview with Julia Cook, who is the author of Come Fly the World. This book, um, I'll, I said in the interview, but basically I picked up this book because I thought the cover was pretty. And I thought it was going to be a novel, but it's actually a nonfiction book talking about the jet set age of Pan Am, its stewardesses and its fleet. And then it also goes into the downfall of Pan Am. And seemingly that would be a very superficial time, but it's actually, as we talk about in the interview, extremely poignant in terms of women's workplace issues and rights. And then 
the importance of these women stewardesses during the Vietnam War. So I just love this book. I feel like it's the first book I've read in a while that I actually learned something and made me think. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Oh. I'm How, good. Are, How you? are you? Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh my gosh, anytime. I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed your book. I'm so glad. I actually picked it up. I was just telling someone, I, I actually lent it out to someone who hasn't given it back yet, but I picked it up because I admit, I just picked it up because I loved the cover. <laughs> but I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I want to tell everyone about it because it was the most fun summer read that I actually learned something as well. And it wasn't a murder book, which is my usual go-to, but um. So anyway, so we'll start. Well, so awesome. tell, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about you. About me. Um, well, I am a travel writer and journalist. I live in Vermont now. I used to live in um, uh, Mexico City and then in Cuba and in New York for a while. Um, and I guess as pertains to this book, the most interesting thing about me is that my father used to work for Pan Am um, until oh. I was nine. Um, but to be honest, that really had very little to do with the reason why I wrote the book. Um, so what happened was I um, uh, had heard about the Pan Am Historical Foundation through my dad. Um, it was always just kind of a, a, a relic, a way for them all to stay in touch and to keep the, um, the you know, the legacy of Pan Am alive. Um, mm -hmm. I had been living in New York. I uh, was writing a lot about art and architecture and design and travel. Um, doing a lot of traveling, writing some about food also, just having a lot of fun. Um, and I heard about an event that was being hosted at the Pan Am Historical, or at the TWA terminal by the Pan Am Historical Foundation. So I Oh, in the, in the Saarinen uh, building? Exactly, that building. So cool. Is, I'm dying to go in there. It, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Now you can get in. It's a hotel. They have that beautiful infinity pool up on the roof and you can have a drink mm -hmm. while watching the planes take off. But back then you couldn't get in unless you were invited um, or unless there was like a, a special event hosted by something like the Pan Am Historical Foundation. So mm -hmm. they hosted something um, and I went and I just found myself talking to these former stewardesses and I was off and running. It was, they, they were like, oh. they were so smart. They were so interesting. They were really funny um, and sophisticated and, and just take no prisoners. Um, I, I told one of them that I wanted to see the view from what, what, what the terminal looked like from like the, the terrace, mm -hmm. which was very clearly roped off. Um, oh. And she was like, mm, follow me. And oh. um, just immediately kind of dragged me, led me by the hand. And we went up and looked at the view and came right back down. And that's the kind of women they were. Are those the four women that you feature in the book? So they're not. They're I found not. Okay. those four women. So, so what happened was I met the, these two women. I found them mm -hmm. super compelling. I wanted to know everything about them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started just basically crashing parties and going to luncheons and other events that the Pan of Historical Foundation was hosting and that um, World Wings International, which is the Association of Former Stewardesses, as opposed to, you know, history buffs. Um, mm -hmm. So I, 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 that they, they host like 
quarterly luncheons and yearly conventions and they have parties and they they go on cruises together they still have an incredible time so oh that's so I started cool. going to all of those events and then that's how I found the four women that I featured in the book okay cool so um just to give a little overview and correct me if I'm wrong here yeah so <laughs> The book um, covers the time period between, I believe, 1966 and 1975. Exactly. And at the time um, where we start your story of these four women in 1966, there are no black women stewardesses. They have to be a certain weight. They have to be a certain height. They cannot be married or pregnant or they are terminated. And then where the story kind of ends, the jet set age is basically over. Um, men can be stewards. There's more diversity. Great for humanity, but it kind of killed off the sexy, like travel stewardess, jet set age. So, can you just talk a little bit about like what happened over that ten year period to kind of make that shift? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I had had no idea when I started doing this research the degree to which stewardesses were um, really integral. Uh, for the feminist movement and for the, the civil rights movement and the, the, the fight for equal pay and, and for diversification uh, across different industries. Um, basically what happened was in, the, in, in 1966, when the book starts, as you said, there were all these incredibly sexist, racist regulations that were in place. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because, you know, because airlines could not compete via prices. Um, because everything was, all the prices were dictated by the Civil Aeronautics Board, they had to compete via image and via, you know, the sex appeal of their stewardesses and via the perks in the air. So mm -hmm. they, they really, they did that by keeping women, um, quote unquote, available. Yeah. Um, that was an important perception. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so basically, over those years, uh, women bit by bit with like smaller lawsuits that then built into bigger lawsuits started saying, well, why shouldn't I be able to get pregnant? Or why shouldn't mm -hmm. I, why shouldn't a black woman be able to perform the same job? She can do exactly the same things as, as everyone yeah. else. And she, you know, they, the, um, that she's just as pretty as everyone else. She has the same waist measurement and the same, you know, fits the same physical profile as the white girls. So this is just blatant racism at work. Um, mm -hmm. And the same goes for, you know, why shouldn't a woman be able to wear, for example, eyeglasses? Even that was regulated on. That was a, a major lawsuit wow. that the women were um, were subjected to rules and regulations about not wearing glasses because they thought that would decrease the sex appeal. Um, and so that, mm -hmm. that, that was a, a small lawsuit that actually meant a whole lot more because, mm -hmm. um, you know, in order to prove that it was actually sexist and not just um, a, a, you know, normal matter of fact uh, regulation, they had to bring in um, information on, you know, why were men not subjected to the same thing? Anyway, point is, all of these tiny, these smaller lawsuits then built up into um, the, you know, uh, very large conclusion that men could also become stewards. Uh, it was, you know, uh, uh, no longer acceptable to fire women after they turned 35 or got mm -hmm. pregnant, um, that they had to be willing to hire very diversity, um, you know, women of varied backgrounds um, and ethnic backgrounds. So, um, and it all, yeah. it all changed from then on. I remember one one thing you pointed out in the book was I think it was Braniff Braniff Airlines, the stewardesses had to wear a pin that said "Come fly me." So right? that was or national. Fly... That oh, was national. national. Yeah. Braniff had you're probably mixing it up because Braniff was the other incredibly sexist um, yeah. <laughs> airline that had what they called the airstrip 
where um, women started a flight wearing like four layers of clothing. And by the end, they were wearing a leotard. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I remember it like, so it was national. And I remember in the book, you talk about, they, they asked to have it say, fly with me instead exactly. of come fly me. And they were denied. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and something I thought like, you know, we, you give a lot of great examples in the book, but I, I wonder if, you know, a lot of the sexual harassment laws and things now are the result of the work of these people in, during this time are. period. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was the first industry that really, well, okay. So backing up, it was, it was incredibly, um, you know, these jobs were incredibly coveted. They were really sought after there were, they hired like two to 3% of applicants. So it was this really high stakes wow. field. Um, and, you know, to prove that such a high stakes field should be open to everyone and that the rules regulating it were in fact sexist, it really blew open the concept of equal employment opportunity law. So actually, mm. so it, it absolutely did set the precedent for so much of the law legislation that, that came in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And I think that's what really, really what I loved about your book is that I never knew that. And I, th I mean, I, I have to say, I picked up your book because I love the cover and I want, I thought I was going to get into like this glitzy, you know, here's what we served and this is what our uniform looked like. And as I got through the course of your book, and is why I loved it so much. I was like, oh my God, I never even realized how much of an impact that this time period, A, and these specific group of women that work for these airlines have impacted my life today. It was really cool. I'm so glad that, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And honestly, to me, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, in part because I think that these things are important. Like I, I think that glamour matters, and I think that you know the, the yeah. details of what was served and how it was served. That all of these things matter, not as much as um, the you know the the reality of of um, pushing equal employment <laughs> labor law through. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that labor law wouldn't have been pushed through if the job wasn't really appealing to so many women. And it wouldn't have been so appealing to some right. women if it hadn't offered such access and glamour and excitement and, you know, a sense that you were participating in something incredibly selective and wonderful. Um, and it wouldn't have been so selective and wonderful if it hadn't been so glamorous. So I, I think all of these yeah. things go together. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, well, whatever, my mom has a really good friend that worked for TWA in, in this time period. And she would always say, and I've, I've talked to her a million times. I think she's so fascinating. I mean, she's seen every part of the world. And she said, you know, it's a weird thing because it was such a sexist time. But she's like, at the same time, it wasn't sexist, Sarah, because she was able to leave her family and travel all over the world where a lot of people would like thumb their nose up on a single woman traveling around and going to stay in hotels by herself. And she said, I was able to do that because of this airline while I was in my inappropriate miniskirt. <laughs> Exactly. That, that, you know, that is exactly the duality that I found so compelling and so interesting. And I think what it did for women like that is it kind of forced them to really embrace those freedoms. They, 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 they had a really keen sense of what they were gaining um, mm -hmm. and, and why they wanted to gain it. And so they were really, um, they were really gritty and excited and, you know, um, ambitious and I, I can't, I'm not hitting the right word for it, but they were really, <laughs> they were just, um, incredibly tenacious when it came to claiming experiences. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's weird because I look at that now and I thought, man, I, you know, I worked really hard in my twenties and I never got to do anything like that. I mean, I didn't break any barriers. I didn't visit any interesting parts of the world. I probably never will. And it just, it's so, it's so interesting to me. One of the women in the book, and I'm blanking on her name, was, um, they, you kind of tell the story of her relationship with her longtime boyfriend. I think he was in the army. Was it Britta? Was her name Britta? Karen. Karen. Maybe it was Karen. Yeah. And I remember like, I was really interested in their relationship. I was like very invested in it. And then I think she ended up marrying the boyfriend. Right. And then they, or did they not get married? And then she was like, I don't know if I should marry him because I want to keep doing my job. And it was interesting. Yeah. Did I get that right? Did she get so married? Karen, Karen married Alan, who was her boyfriend. Alan. Yes. Um, and they, they had like a stop and go type of relationship. They were back and forth. She kept saying, I'm not sure that I should get married right now because I want to travel. I want to do all these interesting things. And, um, and she was really excited about Alan. In, one of the things that she loved about him was that he really he pushed her. Like he, he was really into outdoor stuff and he, you know, pushed her to learn to ski and do hiking backpacking trips and and he loved traveling too and they did all of these interesting things together so she was really um she was really convinced for a while that they could have like a new version of a relationship that she wouldn't be pushed into um you know as she she wrote a letter home to her parents that broke my heart that was all about how she's not quite ready yet to to start washing bottles and changing diapers Hmm. um and she was really excited at the idea that she could have a marriage that didn't push her into that just yet that she could have some choice in the matter um, yeah. and that that relationship didn't didn't turn out the way she hoped it would um yeah that was but, bummer yeah but she wound up having an incredible you know they, they they I won't spoil it for um people who haven't read the book but they have a back and forth situation and in the end there is a happy ending it's just not the ending that she she thought would happen yeah. And I, I really, I have to say, I really liked how you put together the epilogue. Cause I was like, what if we don't know what happened? <laughs> um, something that was really fascinating to me that I never even, I'm like a history buff and I had I was not aware of this as, at all was how was the involvement of commercial aviation and especially the people that worked for the women stewardesses and how they were involved in the Vietnam war. So can you just talk, like touch briefly on that and how that came about? Yeah, I mean, I had had no idea about the extent to which they were involved in the Vietnam War either. Um, but basically, what what I learned in researching the book is that since the U.S. doesn't have um, what most other nations have, which is a flag carrier, which is mm -hmm. um, you know a, a, an airline that's associated with or owned by the government, subsidized by the, the government, um, most air, most countries that have a flag carrier then use that flag carrier for any um, you know any military engagements that they have. But since we don't have that we contract out with, we, we have a standing agreement with um, all of the private airlines in the US that when there's a war, we have the right to contract, the DOD has the right to contract out with um, these different private airlines. So um, in Vietnam, every single, all of the troops that were out there had been brought out there on private airlines. Pan Am was not the only airline that had mm. those um, contracts, but it did have the biggest share of them. Um, and it did, uh, most other airlines ran like airline within an airlines. So they had women who, um, who were specifically hired to charter these flights, but Pan Am was unique in that it was just like, here's a chunk of the world. If you want to go to Southeast Asia, you're probably going to have to fly troops to Vietnam too. So cheers. Um, 
so all of these women who really, you know, they, they had signed up to fly for Pan Am because they wanted to see these pockets of the world that they had never been able to dream of seeing that their parents would never have seen. Um, mm-hmm. They were not, very few of them said no. Many more of them said, all right, well, if that's part of the, the package, um, you know, I, I really want to go to Hong Kong and I want to go to Guam and I want to go to Bali. So I guess I'll be flying troops to Vietnam as well. Yeah. And I just, I can't even imagine like serving a drink to an 18 year old kid on his way to possibly die in a war that no one thought was worth it. I mean, it just, it blew my mind. It's, it's so crazy. And, and, you know, the, the most incredible thing to me was just the, the total, the, the degree to which there were like, these women had such different perspectives on the war and such different experiences on these flights. And yet some of the things that they told me were all completely the same. Like every single woman that I talked to told me that how impactful it was to them, exactly what you're saying to be serving drinks, which were all Cokes to (laughs) these 18 year old boys that were, they told me reading Archie comics and, you know, excited to have ice cream. They asked for seconds of ice cream so politely. Um, And, and, you know, flying them into this war was just this incredibly heartbreaking, tense, poignant, um, really harrowing thing for them to do. And then they all told me also about how incredible it was both um, uh, in a, you know, really joyful and really bittersweet way to be flying these men back out, those men who had, who had indeed survived. Um, but they were different. They, they really saw the immediate effects of PTSD. Um, they, they saw, they dealt with men who were flying high on heroin, um, and who had, who had really seen horrible things. They also saw men who were just so happy to be leaving, um, yeah. just, just beyond thrilled. So it was, it was both really joyful and also really, um, really poignant. Mm-hmm. And then following that, the, um, I might get this wrong. They also were in charge of the baby flights. Yeah. Out of Vietnam, which I just, that story just was so wonderful. I, I never knew that in all of the reading I've ever done about us history, never knew this. And I found it completely fascinating. Me too. I found it incredible. To me, the, the real heart of the story to me was the, the, the moment when um, the three main women in the book, Karen, Tori, and Lynn, um, each individually, you know, get this, the, the news that they're going to, their plane is, is going to be, that, that they are going to be reassigned and they're going to have to fly instead of on this regular around the world flight, they're going to be rerouted to Saigon to be picking up this plane load of orphans um, and that they're going to be, you know, they, they, they didn't know how dangerous it was. The, mm-hmm. um, the flight the previous day had, had, had been, um, had crashed and they thought it might've been shot down, uh, which happened. Um, and so they, you know, they, they really, they, they, they were heading into a really, really dangerous, very important thing. And, and to me, the heart of the book is just the fact that these are three women who said yes, who just, yeah. who accepted that as a matter of course, who were doing their job, who, who had such a high level of commitment to their professionalism and their sense of duty to the airline, to the children, to any passenger um, that they, they said yes. Yeah. And just to, um, just so I'm clear and I, I want to make sure I have this right. So the baby flights were set up by the U S government in that they were going to, um, the South of Vietnam to go in and take orphans that were 
most of them I think were Vietnamese citizens, but some of them I think were the products of relationships between soldiers and Vietnam, Vietnamese women. And they were gonna bring them back to the US to be adopted by US families, is that right? That is correct, yeah. Yeah. It was a really messy situation because what, what wound up happening was very different from how it was conceived. Um, mm -hmm. It had been conceived as, you know, uh, the U.S. government sending planes in to pick up children who had all been certified as orphans, um, mm -hmm. who were who had no living parents, um, and who had wow. certified, you know, ad adoptive um, families confirmed here in the U.S. And what wound up happening was that because this was this was right as the North Vietnamese Army was um, approaching Saigon. Um, there was such, a, it was an environment of such total chaos and fear. Um, mm. And, you know, there was, it was such upheaval. So many of the, um, especially of, of the children uh, who were fathered by American servicemen were so afraid that of what the, the communist army would do to their half American, half Vietnamese, Eurasian rather, and that's insult, it's, um, yes, to their Eurasian children. Uh, they were so afraid that they left their kids at orphanages um, uh, in the name of, of trying to get them out of the country, um, in, in the name of their survival, right? Like all a mother wants for her baby is, is for her baby yeah. to outlive her. Um, so yeah. they, there was, so, so in reality, and then some of the orphanages wound up packing up and sending off children who were not at all orphans, whose parents were very much alive and who had left them at orphanages um, for safekeeping for just a day or two um, in order to, to, while the army was moving through. So it was just, it was, it was total chaos and it was really, uh, really poorly executed in the end. But um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and didn't they like, wasn't there an instance where like there were many lawsuits after the war where people came and tried to reclaim their children that had been taken over on these flights? Yeah, there were a ton of lawsuits. It was a really big, it, it was a big, big deal here. Um, wow. And, you know, and then there should have been lawsuits. It was, it was so messily done and, and the level of um, the lack of attention to detail that the US government really um, implemented and just kind of assuming that, you know, anyone yeah. who's there would, would want to come here. So it, it just was, it, it was really, they did not cross all the T's or dot the I's or, or follow any kind of protocol. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And to give, and to give these three women credit where credit is due. I mean, you and I both have small children. Imagine taking a commercial airliner full of screaming children with three women to supervise all of them on a flight from Vietnam to the United States. I mean, it is like the ask of the century. No, I cannot imagine. And, you know, there were <laughs> the, the three of them were not so that there was a bigger crew. Right. So there were like 15. I think there were nine, nine women in the crew and there were like 10 vo volunteers. But still, um, I mean, can you imagine to, to like 400 children? Yes. The ratio boggles the mind. Yeah. Like it just is. I, I absolutely cannot imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, and, I, and, yeah. And to me, the, the, again, like the heart of the book really is that just the, the embracing of the yes, the, the embracing of the challenge, like no matter how, no matter how the politics of it, of the baby lift itself got, got completely, you know, messed up and chaotic and really didn't work in the end. The fact is that these women had, had done an incredible heroic thing that they, they stepped up when, um, when it was really dangerous to do so so yeah and, and also just chaotic like the the yeah the things i've been told about the smells in the air and the um the, the sounds of all the screaming and the just it was it was horrible
Yeah, and I, you know, not to sound cheesy or anything, but I, I, I really think this story does a great, great job of explaining how, you know, this seemingly ordinary job of being a flight attendant and is, we're somehow, we're somehow asking these people to be heroes in many, many, many situations that historically have come up and even now, and it, it really opened my eyes to that. And I was, I was just really impressed by the way you told that story. Um, one so more glad. question. Oh, I'm, I really, I just, I've given this book, um, I got it from our library and then I bought it. And then I lent it to someone who I was like, can I please have it back for my interview? And they were like, no, I'm not done. But um, <laughs> so that's why I'm like forgetting some of the details because I had made notes in there. But I really think everyone should read this book. I just loved it so much. And I won't keep you because I know you have some little, little babies that need your attention. But one thing before you go, what is your opinion on how air travel has gotten so trashy? I think it's inevitable. And I think it's the price we pay for having really cheap airfare, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think, you know, if you think about, everyone seems to forget when we talk about like the glory days or the glamour days of flying with this kind of backwards nostalgic view. I mean, it was glamorous. The nostalgia makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, it was incredibly polished and, and um, you know, really uh, it was an event. It was an occasion. People got dressed for it. Um, but the reason they did was because prices, as I said, prices were, were set by the government and they were set really high. And mm -hmm. so airlines had to really try hard to outdo each other in the experience. Um, and mm -hmm. so as soon as those rules, the, the, as soon as the price fixing fell and airlines could compete with one another via price, um, the experience no longer really mattered as much. Yeah. So that, that I think is um, the price we pay for being able to fly across the country for $400. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I remember like even um, I'm 39 and I remember being a little girl. My parents took me to Disney World in like, I want to say like 1986. And we flew on Eastern Airlines and it was my first time on a plane. I wore a party dress and my tie up shoes. Oh, yeah. And it was like you could smoke, I think. I feel yeah. like I remember I have a memory of this. I could be wrong. But um and I remember it was like a thing. And my mom was like, no, you have to wear a nice outfit. You can't you, ha you have to be quiet. And I mean, now it's like, oh no, you, when I was growing up, especially as an airline family, we were, we were traveling for free. Um, and we were, uh, absolutely expected to dress for it. We, we presented the airline. So, you yeah. know, we had to wear, we had to wear clothes. Yeah. And I remember it's at just... some point when I was in college, I definitely started wearing sweatpants, of course, as we all did, I think. And, I um, and now I'm like, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. I work hard to find pants that are both stretchy and look nice. <laughs> I know they're seemingly available right now, which is a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Um, but anyway, so everyone, the book is Come Fly the World. Thank you, Julia Cook. This was such a great discussion. I love your book. I'm going to tell everyone to read it. Thank you so much, Sarah. All right. You have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. hope you enjoyed that interview. You can follow Julia on Instagram at Julia C. Cook, C-O-O-K-E, and follow what she's doing next. Um, I'm sure it's going to be great. And she has some other books you can look at, but I really enjoyed that book and it's called Come Fly the World. It's readily available. And I think sometimes we can learn a little something, even though we're, we're still having fun over here, but we should be able to look back and learn and find something new. And just because it's summer doesn't mean that we can fall into a real housewife's hole and not be able to come out. 
Something I forgot to mention at the top of the show. So Hilaria Baldwin, sorry, I'm going to call her Hillary. Her name is Hillary. Hillary Baldwin posted on Thursday a new Instagram post where she talks about, I mean, I can't even believe the audacity of this woman. She talks about her cultural identity as fluid. So she's picked up the buzzword that everyone's using about their sexuality and has applied it to her complete sham of a lifestyle. And she's calling herself fluid. So here's what she said. Okay. She's talking about her side of the family and she hasn't seen them for almost two years because of the pandemic. And they talked about, quote, how we grew up, our languages, our culture, culturals, which are multi-fluid and very valid. When you are multi, it can feel hard to belong. You are constantly going back and forth trying to be more this or more that. You feel you have to explain why you are the way you are, trying to fit into a world of labels where there might not be one that perfectly defines you. You will never quite fit in because the other parts of you shape and influence all your parts. So she's saying here basically that she identifies Spanish and American and it's so confusing and so stressful for her to have to go through go between the two of them and it's so confusing to even explain it to us mere mortals who have no idea what she's talking about it's so absurd if I was a transgender or a fluid gender person I would be so offended and so mad that she stole our stuff to try to make herself sound like she knew what she was talking about you cannot explain away your grift by saying you're fluid that's like me saying, it, it just, it just, it honestly just like, did like, like takes down everything that everyone else is struggling with by saying that if there's someone out there that is struggling with their gender identity and then Alaria Baldwin goes and says she's struggling with the fact that she's American or Spanish when she's not Spanish, it's so offensive. It, it offends me and I'm not even, this doesn't even apply to me and it's offensive to me that We've created this world where everyone can just go say, I, I identify as this, and then it's okay. Okay, I identify as a, um, a kitten, and I'm going to be a kitten. And it's really stressful for me to have to explain it to everyone how fluid I am between a kitten and a human. Anyway, Hilaria goes on to say, The way I've spoken about myself and my deep connection to two cultures could have been better explained. I should have been more clear, and I'm sorry. How could you be more clear? There's nothing to clear up. You are American and you wish that you were Spanish and you, why don't you just, just say that I'm a, I don't know how to say that. You know how they say if you're, if you're into France, you're a Francophile. Say I'm a Spanophile. I say I love Spain. I identify with the, I love the country. I love the lifestyle and I just want my kids to speak two languages. It's douchey. And it's pretentious, but it's not a lie. And you can still live your life in an authentic way. Oh, God. She keeps going on. We all get to curate our individual expressions of our cultures, languages, who we love, what we believe in, how we dress, present ourselves. And this is the right that each person should have. Yeah, that's fine. But, again, comparing the fact that you're lying about where you came from doesn't mean that... It, do, it cannot be compared to me, like dressing goth if I want to. That's what she's trying to compare it to. She's trying to say that it's her right to lie about her background because some people can dress a certain way. It, it's not the same. She also said, um, 
cultural culture, languages, sexual orientations, religious and political beliefs are things that are allowed to be fluid. So she's com she's comparing. So she's saying that her lie again, her lying about where she's from and her background is the same thing as someone's gender orientation or sexual orientation. So, I mean, that's crazy. So I've just, I'm just looking on her Instagram now. So someone wrote. Right under the post, they commented, Hilaria, you don't get to hijack the LGBTQIA plus experience with your multi-fluid race ethnicity creation. Fluid is a term often used to describe sexuality, not culture. Oh, she also, by the way, the picture, the picture that she captioned this with is her daughter, Garmin, holding up a painting she made that blended a lot of pictures together. So she's trying to compare her daughter's artwork. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. She she has to she has to stop. Who who is her who is her PR person? She, just stop talking. Just go away. Go away. For, and she went away for like 2 weeks. You have to go away for like a year and just like raise your kids and then come back and just talk about something else. The other thing I wanted to talk to you guys about which I forgot is I listened to her podcast I don't want to give them the ratings. I was annoyed about that, but I did, I did listen to her. She's got a new podcast with her really charming and affable husband, Alec Baldwin, who I'm sure everyone just wants to hear what he thinks. And it's called what's one more or what's one more. Meaning that it's like a play on the fact that they keep having children. So it's what's one more question mark. And I actually tuned in because I find it hilarious that Alec Baldwin, he who called his daughter a rude little pig about 10 years ago, is giving parenting advice on a podcast now with his wife who was accused of impersonating a Spanish person. <laughs> so the fact that these people, and you know, it just goes to show you like anyone can have a podcast. It's not difficult. Some people, some people come up to me and they're like, congratulations. I'm like, no, it's really not. There's nothing to it. Like, you don't need to congratulate me. It's so embarrassing because I'm like, oh, if only you knew how not congratulatory you should be about this. Anyway, I, I digress. But so, so Alec and Ilaria have a podcast called What's One More? And they are, um, and it's such an obvious failed, in my opinion, attempt to rehab her persona and reestablish her as a parenting expert and an all-around lovable person and you know I it's weird I like Alec Baldwin in like a celebrity sense like I I love his movies I think he's a great actor I love him on 30 Rock I love Beetlejuice I think he's I think he's a very talented comedic and dramatic actor but I find him very annoying like in his personal life like the she just annoys me and the fact that he is he's like a serious actor and he's 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 like into this is just like oh god I just think that the combination of the two of them together is really painful so anyway the podcast is stupid you don't need to waste your time listening to it it's she does not use her fake accent in it which is another thing I wanted to find out she speaks normally but there are a few times in it Kind of like Kate Winslet in Mare of Easttown. Sometimes you can hear a little bit of the British like trying to pop through. Like she just can't help it. But um, like she said some, I can't remember what word she said. She used some word and I was like, that's not how you pronounce that. 
Um, oh, and, she, and then she said, like, I went to the cinema. I'm like, oh, she's like, I roll. You went to the movies. You're from Boston. You can go to the cinema. Stuff like that. So I think her accent is going to fade away to one of these just very affected, dramatic accents. And then she's going to use, like, the Euro word for things. Like cinema. And... You know, she'll say, I'm going to the shops instead of I'm going to the supermarket. Like that kind of stuff. Just to make just to make her sound a little a little more elevated than the rest of us. So anyway, um, guys, have a great week. Please go read Come Fly the World by Julia Cook. Follow her on Instagram, follow me. And can I please, please, please beg you to leave me a five-star review on Amazon, iTunes, or any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to me. Um, it's not because I have this ego that needs to be stroked I couldn't care less but it really helps with algorithms and lists and things like that so please 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 leave me a five-star review and we need to use it honestly to get rid of the one jerk that left me a one star so please leave me a five-star review it does not matter if you've left one before you can do as many as you want and I love you guys and have a great week